0: Hi, everybody. This is Professor Jervick, and I'm going to do a podcast on mood and affect. I'm going to highlight depression. I want to first go over a couple of things. Um, Mood, of course, is a subjective thing that the patient feels versus affect is what we as the nurses, what we see in the person, and that would be what we would be documenting in the chart. There will be quite a few different definitions that you'll notice throughout the textbooks um, about mood and affect and you'll need to make sure that you're learning those so that you can properly use those. So one of those is melancholy. Melancholy is actually just that sad feeling that um, each of us can have. There's various triggers. Um, It could be that I've had a bad day and I'm feeling kind of sad and usually the next day I'm feeling fine and that that was just a transient feeling versus depression is when that is going on um, and there's other things lasting longer and it, it full depression is like a two-week thing. And so, spectrum of um, depression is, depression is a spectrum of disorders. And each person, how they're going to demonstrate that and how they're going to feel with that is going to be a little differently. So, it's not going to be the same for each person. Um, We can also see that in seasonal affective disorder, where uh, the weather can affect people's moods, major depressive disorder, And then anhedonia is another word I really want you to know. Uh, This is a hallmark sign of depression. And anhedonia is a lack of interest in activities that used to give the person pleasure. And then, of course, that typical depressive mood. And again, that usually has to occur for two weeks for it to really be depression. Now, I want to go over some age-related aspects. Um, Infants to preschool. <clears throat> Usually, they are really just kind of observing how their parents or their primary care- caregivers are acting to kind of learn how they're going to act. Um, they start to learn some self-regulation in uh, later on in childhood, and then during adolescence, during that difficult times in all of our lives, um, hormones happen and. You know, there's a lot of variable mood states during that time. But also during adolescence, they've learned a lot of skills which help them to deal with those things. Now, the older adult, uh, they usually are more positive when the, than they were when they were younger. Um, any of their negative thoughts are usually more about physical issues more than emotional. And so we just want to monitor that. So, again, two of the major hallmark signs of depression are anhedonia or that depressed mood for two weeks. And then I want to um, talk about some of the risk factors for depression. Um, Women are more likely to have depression than men. Um, People who aren't married, that lower socioeconomic status. Um, If there's been some sort of early childhood trauma a negative life event, a loss uh, or humiliation, a family history of depression, um, lack of coping ability or a lack of resilience. I can't read my handwriting. A lack of social support, um, oh, postpartum depression, um, so, the time frame right after having a baby, they're, of course, at risk for postpartum depression. And then, of course, alcohol and substance abuse is going to increase that risk of depression. Now, these should sound very familiar to the things we talked about in anxiety. So, you should be starting to identify some themes. Now, from a cultural standpoint, um, things that I want to talk about is that female Latino women, uh, they tend to be w- more worried about money issues, um, especially if they have had some immigration issues and they tend to worry about the leaving the family behind. Um, some things, people can become so depressed that they become mute or they start having hallucinations or delusions. And we'll talk more about hallucinations and delusions in our psychosis factor. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now the nursing role We want to try to help them reframe those thoughts. We want to try to help them look at things in a more positive light. We want to help increase self-esteem. And we can do this by um, encouraging exercise, um, healthy eating patterns, possibly religion if that's positive for the person, incorporating family, underlying beliefs or assumptions. We want to help build rapport with that patient Um, motivational interviewing, and we'll watch some videos in class, we want to try to get the patient to talk. Um, We want them to change their thoughts. And so um, not for it to be a monologue of us talking, but them to be really talking. And then we really want to think about with those two key symptoms, that depression and that anhedonia how does that affect their day-to-day life? So is it affecting them with insomnia or is it affecting them where they're sleeping too much? They can't get out of bed. Um, are they having reoccurring thoughts at night where it's, you know, again, causing that problems with the sleep? Um, is it recently after a death or bereavement of a loss of a loved one or somebody that they were close to? Did they just start new medications? Um, Or is there a new medical condition that is potentially leading into this? Now, children in depression, um, with them, um, of course, you know, not happy, not pleasure. That, That same thing as far as not being sad and not having pleasure, but it looks a little different than with children. They can be irritable, withdrawn. Aggressive, negative, they may isolate themselves and there may be a loss of energy. With adolescents, um, we may see them using drugs or sexual promiscuity, and there could be those thoughts of uh, death or suicide. And um, frequently, signs symptoms and symptoms, anxiety and depression are linked. And so we really want to watch with that. Now, anger can be a sign of depression with children because they just can't verbalize their feelings. So sometimes they just get angry. Now, I want to talk a little bit about um, postpartum depression. There's not a lot to really talk about with this, um, but I want you to understand the difference between postpartum depression and postpartum blues. So about 70% of women who've had a baby do experience those baby blues. And usually that is not longer than two weeks, um, and that's going to be there. They might be tearful, anxious, and have some insomnia. And of course, you know the baby's keeping them awake, um, and so there's there's all those things that are going on. Um, And so that just that natural. Hormonal feelings that that you know after you've had a baby that you could, that you feel, and I remember um, after having all of my children, um, the extent was different with each child, but um, definitely there was some going on, and I think the first one was definitely the hardest for me. Um, If it lasts longer than two weeks, we really have to worry about the mom rejecting the infant. We want to make sure that the mom and baby are bonding. We want to be watching that the mom's not having any signs of guilt. Um, The mom could have some weird food cravings with this. There could be some weight gain. Um, She could be experiencing some very depressive feelings um, and we want to um, keep mom from having negative thoughts about baby. And we don't want mom to hurt the baby secondary distress or emotions. Um, so it's hard to treat just with psychotherapy alone. So frequently antidepressants such as SSRIs um, really have to be involved. So some of the things that we can help as far as interventions is that we can teach that kangaroo therapy, that skin-on-skin care, that that really helps with bonding. Again, that psychotherapy, that talking it out, the um, SSRIs, and then anticipate um, the baby's needs. So that can help decrease the mom's stress and help um, the mom just feel better about everything. Now, we'll talk about postpartum psychosis. It's not very common, um, but with postpartum psychosis, it's kind of when that postpartum depression goes really bad. And they can have some delusions and hallucinations. And we'll talk about that when we get to psychosis. <clears throat> now some interventions. Um, psychotherapy, of course, that's talking. Therapeutic communication is going to be one of our biggest things. Um, the books have some really good examples. Make sure that if you see those examples in your textbooks that you're reviewing those. And remember that we're really trying to build trust with our patients, that we want to get them to talk Um about their feelings. Now, also another thing with cultures, you know, some cultures, out of respect, they just don't make eye contact, or they don't like touch. Um, it just crosses some cultural boundaries. Versus others, if they're not making eye contact, it can be secondary to mood. So we really have to kind of gauge what's going on with our patients and see, see, you know, what the, the problem is. Um, and then I've had students ask before, is it okay to say it will be okay? And really in, it's it's kind of one of those cliche things of saying, yeah, it's okay. Um, <clears throat> better things that you could say to a patient would be, um, I'm here with you. Um, also, knowing that um, silence is okay, that um just sitting with somebody and being present with them and being comfortable with silence. Another thing, especially with anxiety, is that um, you're going to keep somebody safe. That's a great comment to say um, when you're making a, a therapeutic conversation or a therapeutic comment to somebody. But always remember to help the patient focus on the positive. Um, what are they interested in? What is the positives? Um And then, of course, with depression, one of the biggest things I really want to point out here is to watch for mania or a sudden increase in energy. Um, If somebody all of a sudden is saying, hey, I'm completely better, I'm ready to go, and it's just kind of like out of the blue... Um, This sudden increase in energy, they may now have the energy to commit suicide if they had been having any plans. So they're actually at an increased risk of suicide. So um, you just really have to watch that. That's a, a huge thing that somebody with low energy is actually less likely to commit suicide versus somebody with a higher energy level or somebody who's manic is more likely to commit suicide. So um, that's it for this introduction, and I will see you in the next podcast. I hope this is helpful. Thanks.